Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. It is really lovely to be here with you. Thank you so much to the World Affairs Council and the Women's Museum and to my mother-in-law. I have a bunch of Dallas natives here, so you have to applaud them as well because we've been on book tour for two months <laughs> with an 11-week-old baby. Uh, so it's been quite a set of weeks. Um, when uh, we think of stories of war, we almost always think about men who go off and fight with guns. Almost never do we think about um, the women who stay behind and make sure there is a place to go back to when the fighting is over. And if you talk about war stories, I imagine you would say maybe Sebastian Younger's Incredible War or Bing West's recent book. You won't think about a story about women. And that is part of why I wrote this book. Because almost never do we think about the reason why there is a place to go back to, which is that there are women who make sure there are communities that are still standing when men come home. And that is how I ended up uh, in December of 2005 in the Kabul International Airport uh, waiting for my fixer, Muhammad, who is the character in the book. And I landed in Kabul. I was at business school at the time. I had turned 30 and decided that I was going to leave ABC News, where I'd spent most of my formative years and all of my 20s uh, covering presidential politics, to go to Afghanistan, to go to business school, and to write about a story I cared about, an economic story that people didn't look at as an economic story because people saw it as women's stuff. And I think that, you know, as a female reporter working in a place like Afghanistan, you almost apologize for writing about women. Because this is seen as the soft story, right? The main event is the battlefield. The main event is not the women who make sure there's a place to go back to when the battle is done. And yet, when you are on the ground in very tough parts of the world, what you realize immediately is that there are unsung heroines all around who are the reason why communities can stay stable and standing. And so when I landed in December of 2005 at the Kabul International Airport, uh, I had this very neat list of names to interview and absolutely no idea what I was doing. I mean, I was you know, a reporter who covered presidential politics. I had no idea what the terrain was like in Afghanistan. But I knew that there was a story, an economic story I wanted to cover, which was the role of women entrepreneurs. Because women are the population you have left during and after war. And they are the ones who make sure that families eat during conflict. And almost never does the spotlight get shined upon them. So I landed, and I called Mohammed, my fixer, because an hour went by, two hours went by, and I'm standing there in the lobby, and I'm watching all these families have lovely reunions at the Kabul International Airport, and I'm thinking, what in the world did I get myself into? I don't even have a ride. So I pay the guy selling juice uh, in the corner of the lobby five US dollars to borrow his cell phone. And I take his cell phone and I call Muhammad and I say, Muhammad, Muhammad, this is Gail, the journalist, the American journalist. I've come from Boston through Dubai. I've been traveling for 36 hours. 
and I'm wondering where you are. I'm standing here at the airport. And he said, Gail, I've been here for two hours waiting for you. But because security is so bad, I can't get anywhere near the airport. He said, so pay a guy a couple bucks. He'll t put your luggage on the trolley, and he'll take you out to where I am, two football fields away, in a Toyota Corolla waiting for you. And so that's what I did. And by the way, no one ever tells you how hard it is to keep a headscarf on while holding luggage. <laughs> it's really not easy. And it's one of those things that you realize early on that you are just in completely different terrain. So I met Muhammad and introduced myself, and I, he said to me basically the same thing that the guy at Dulles Airport had said, which is, that's really interesting you're writing about women entrepreneurs, but um, I'm not sure why you're here for a couple weeks, because that's going to take you about half a day. Because no one thought that there were women running businesses, right? I mean, just people thought I was on a fool's errand. The guy at Dulles Airport said, I bet I'll see you here before your ticket says. Uh, because you'll be coming back. And that was what almost everyone thought, that there was no story. And so I landed uh, about three days later in the offices of Mercy Corps, which is a charity some of you might know that works in Afghanistan and other tough parts of the world. And I was, like most reporters, pretty desperate for a story. I'm sort of interviewing entrepreneurs, I'm working on this FTPs, and nothing had really grabbed me. A lot of really interesting stories, but nothing had really pulled at me and said, you have to do this. I was also writing a case for Harvard Business School uh, that was going to be taught about the role of women entrepreneurs in Reconstruction. So I'm sitting there in a room that has almost no heat in a very cold December day, and where this young woman, who I've been told I should interview by uh, several charities, and I sit over cups of actually Lipton tea hovered over because the wooden heater called the Bukhari was completely broken. And I said to her, okay, I'm here working on this story. Can you tell me a little bit about your business? And she said, well, yes, I'm so glad you asked. I've actually just turned down a job with the international community that would have paid me about 2,000 US dollars a month. And I've done that because I'm starting my next business, which is a business consultancy that's going to go around Afghanistan and teach entrepreneurship because honestly and truly, nothing will absolutely make a difference for Afghanistan like business. And it's business that's going to make sure we have an economy that can support our own long after this round of internationals leaves. And for women, it's even more important because money is power for women in Afghanistan. Earning an income earns respect and it changes the dynamic in the family. And I have seen that over and over again as I go around Afghanistan. I looked at her, I was like, oh my God, it's like Donald Trump sitting across from me, right? I mean, I was not expecting this young woman to really explain to me in more clear terms than I'd ever heard at Harvard Business School why entrepreneurship mattered. And so I looked at her, I said, look, you know, I'm barely 30, and I know you're not 30. So how in the world do you know this much about entrepreneurship, and why are you so passionate about business? She looked at me and she said, well, Gail, you know, I had this great business under the Taliban, and that business really made the difference for my whole community. I was supposed to be a professor, and actually I found out that none of that was possible because, of course, the Taliban came. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't do anything. So I did the one thing I still could. I became a businesswoman. 
And that business was such a powerful force all around our community. It was really a good business. And it was actually the Taliban years that made me an entrepreneur. And I sat there, my eyes popping out of my head, and I said, Eureka, right? Because as a reporter, these are the kinds of stories you're looking for. The kind of stories that no one is paying attention to, but that really stand for the power of business to make a difference and the power of women to change communities. And here was the most dramatic example, the ultimate celebrity apprentice, if you want to talk about this in Donald Trump terms, of young women who had managed to become breadwinners during years in which they were not even supposed to be on the street. And so I really spent the next five years bringing this story to readers, because it was one story about one young woman at one very difficult time that stood for so many around the world that go unreported. And so that is how it started. That cold day in December of 2005 was the beginning. And what I learned pretty quickly was September of 1996, the Taliban swept through Kabul. Every night on Radio Sharia, which used to be Radio Kabul but was renamed uh, by the Taliban very early on, new rules came through. So women learned overnight, we will not go to work, women will not go to work. No offices will be open to women. Women will not go to school. No universities or school classes will be open to women. Women uh, will not be allowed to leave the house without a chaperone or mahram, which meant that if you were a 50-year-old woman, you could not leave the house by yourself. But if your 14-year-old nephew went with you, you were fine. Women must wear burqas. And uh, by the way, um, women will not be out in public at any time other than what is necessary. And they will never be able to show the seditious limbs. I will leave it to this room to decide what seditious limbs are, but that was their language. And so overnight, you had young women, like women in this room, who had gone to work, who had gone to university, who had gone to school, who could not do anything. And within weeks, Kamala, you know, at the beginning, it was sort of strange but not awful because you didn't really think it was going to last very long. Kamala kept asking her dad, how long do you think this will last? Do you think it'll be another week? And he would sort of shake his head and go because he was a former army general. And his sense from the very beginning was that this was not going to be a quick transition, but he didn't want his daughters to know that. So at first, they started a neighborhood book swap. One young woman would bring Persian detective stories, another gal would bring Rumi poems, and they would trade. But pretty quickly, things got very serious for Kamala's family and many others. Because if you were from the wrong ethnic group, and if you had been seen as supporting the last government, you were in the crosshairs of house-to-house -house searches the Taliban started to make. So pretty soon, Kamala's father realizes he is actually endangering his family and the women in his family because he had nine girls and two boys. Uh, he had three, four girls who were still home and two young men, uh, that he was putting them at risk. And so he ends up leaving the city. And we can talk about that uh, if you'd like in, in Q&A. But he left because for both political reasons and security reasons, it was very tough for him to stay. And then soon, her older, uh, the oldest of her two younger brothers also has to leave. And he has to leave because Kabul is a city in which instant messaging looks slow compared to the power and the speed of rumor. So you had families who were hearing that their uncle's father's brother's friend had gotten picked up on the street. And no mother wanted to let her teenage boy be the one who was caught. 
because young men were being sent to the front lines, young men were being taken to jail and disappeared, and no one knew how much of those stories were true and how much of that was rumor. But you didn't want your son to be the way you found out. So her older, the oldest of her two younger brothers had to leave. And so you have a situation where a young woman who is 19 years old, who was supposed to be a literature professor, ends up at the helm of five brothers and sisters who are counting on her to provide. So she looked around like all good entrepreneurs in training and said, okay, what are my circumstances? My family needs me, I have to do something. Okay, male tailors can no longer make dresses for women. There's an opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, we cannot work outside the house, but we can work in our living rooms. So there's a possibility. Maybe we could do something at home. And women still need dresses because no matter how bad things are, women still want to look good. And that is as true in Taliban Afghanistan as it is in Dallas, Texas. I promise you. Because it wasn't the burqa that was upsetting people. You know, life was lived under the burqa. And people went on with their lives. So as I talk about in the book, there were fewer weddings because so many men were fighting on all sides of the conflict. But there still were weddings. And one young woman joked with me, isn't it the same in the US? You have the same relatives at every wedding and you can't wear the same dress. <laughs> and so that's what happened. These young women realized pretty quickly that there was a market opportunity because the rich folks who used to buy nice dresses from Pakistan and China and Iran were all gone. Like in most conflict zones, people who have means leave pretty quickly. And so there was a market for cheap homemade stuff that filled the market need. So Kamala said, okay, I'm gonna start this dressmaking business. And there was only one problem. She had no idea how to sew. And I think that like so many educated people, she had never bothered to learn the skills that her mother had wanted to pass down. Her mother had tried to teach her how to sew, how to embroider. She'd always been going to class and had plans for the future, sort of, say, oh, yeah, yeah, next week, next week. And then all of a sudden, those skills actually mattered. So she went across town in one of the early scenes of the book to her sister. And at first, her sister, who is a teacher and also a master seamstress, her older sister, who had bothered to learn how to sew, uh, says, no way. I'm not teaching you anything. Because in case you didn't know, it's really dangerous out there. Haven't you seen Vice and Virtue? So the Vice and Virtue, or Amr bin Maruf and Jari, were these Taliban foot soldiers who drove around the city in black Toyota Hilux pickup trucks. That is the vehicle of choice in many tough parts of the world, but it was the Taliban's car. And sometimes with Quranic verses on their side, and all they did was look for rule breakers. These guys were the foot soldiers of Kandahar. And they were often much more energetic than the men in Kandahar were about why their mission mattered. So if you were a woman whose uh, wrist happened to fall out from under her burqa because you were trying to help your young son cross the street, or a man whose beard was not long enough, which was the length of your fist, according to Taliban rules, you could be beaten with a shalok or wooden baton or TV antennas or sometimes at the wrong end of an AK-47, depending on who found you and what mood they were in. And her sister says, no way, don't you know how dangerous it is? And Kamala says, look, I'll do everything I can to stay within the rules. I will only go out with our younger brother, Rahim, who will be my mahram or chaperone. I will never, ever pull back my burqa so that they won't even know what I look like anyway. 
I will absolutely stay indoors. I will never talk with men and I will not be in the bazaar during the time of prayer because the call to prayer time was when the vice and virtue forces would swoop down, really looking for offenders. That was their peak time of day. And finally, her sister relents. And from that one blue party dress that her sister teaches her to make, they created a lifeline for women all around their neighborhood. And they created jobs and hope at a time when there was really neither. Because one of the untold stories of the Taliban years is that it was also an economic story. People were just desperate. These guys had no idea how to run an economy. And people were selling windows and shoelaces and baby dolls and doors. That's how desperate people were to feed their kids. Some people actually sent their children off for money to places like Pakistan where they could work because they couldn't feed them. And so Kamala starts with this one dress and pretty early on realizes that there's no way she won't be able to grow her business because people keep coming. One of the women who is a character in the book, Sarah, uh, I think stood for so many. She stood, she knocked on Kamala's door, and at that point, any knock on the door, as you can imagine, was reason to jump. Because you had no idea what was going to happen or what that day was going to bring. So this woman knocks on Kamala's door and says, listen, my name is Sarah. And she was about 30 years old, and Kamala actually thought she was about 50. She said, my husband died several years back. He was a high school principal. I'm a widow and I have three children and no way to feed them. For the past several years, my brothers-in-law have been supporting us, but all three of them have lost their jobs. One was a city worker. He gets no pay. He gets no salaries in the Taliban. He has no money. Another was a mechanic for the Northern Alliance. They're now at war with the Taliban in the North. He's not getting paid. And the third is a computer engineer. And you can imagine they don't have much use for his skills. And she said, listen, I have never held a job in my life, but I know how to sew. And if you give me work, I promise you will not be sorry. And that kept happening. And so over time, Kamala ends up growing her business to a network of seven to eight shopkeepers just around her neighborhood of Kharkana. Uh, and there's a bazaar, Lise Maryam, which he basically becomes her second home with her younger brother. And she creates this factory in what used to be her parents' living room. And one thing I think that struck me so much was that this was not just a place where young women would come to work. It was also a place of real community. You know, at a time when these young women couldn't be anywhere together, Kamala's living room became their social center. And they would do what young women do when they get together. They would complain about their family. They would swap jokes. They would listen to Farhad Darya, who was a famous uh, Afghan crooner. They would listen to him in an old Chinese cassette recorder that Kamala's father had left for them at the house. And they would talk about the one thing uh, that the Taliban could never stop, the Titanic. Because Leonardo DiCaprio was more popular in Kabul <laughs> than he ever was in the United States. This was a city where you could not have any image of the human form legally. You could not have any TV. You could not have video. You could not have movies. You could not have imports. And yet there was no one who had not seen the Titanic. <laughs> and this was what people kept doing. Kamala was hardly the only one. There were women who were selling cotton. Uh, one woman who carved out a hole in the back of her house and would send her young son onto the street to say, if you are looking to buy milk and fruits and vegetables, my mother is selling them in the back of the house. One woman I met um, actually sold burqas 
her daughter would sew with Kamala during the day, and then at night they would run to plug in the iron if they had power for a couple of hours, do the pleats of the burqa, and her mother would take those to the shop the next day. And my personal favorite was a young woman who taught Microsoft Office and a women's hospital throughout the Taliban years because they'd gotten funding and women's hospitals are one of the few safe spaces because the Taliban would indeed raid women's hospitals, but they would not be there as often because they didn't want to be around women. And so young women, I know a lot of you fly a lot and you sort of, when they tell you to put away your computer, you keep it at like three quarters. That's how these young women taught each other computers because they never knew if they were going to be raided. And if they were, they would shut the computer, throw it in their bag, and run. And everybody had the drill down. And yet, they were teaching Microsoft Office. And so I think that, for me, it was just so incredible to see that from every small opening they had, these young women would exploit it, not just for themselves, but for their whole community. And I, you know, it was very tough to bring this story to readers given the security situation. Um, one day, I talk about this in the book, one day I went to interview a woman who was now at the UN, who uh, was during the Taliban years working for a German NGO teaching sanitation and health still. And she was the breadwinner for her family because she was getting paid in dollars by foreigners. And so she was supporting five members of her family at the time. And she said to me, you know, I want to talk to you because I want people to know how much work women did. But if my husband finds out, he will divorce me. And that is an economic question in a place like Afghanistan. You do not get divorced lightly. And I said, look, you don't have to talk to me. I fully understand. She said, no, no, this is very important. I've already decided I'm going to do it, but I want you to know what the stakes are. And all of that weighed on you. You know, I mean, it was, you know, there was a, a time in October of 2008 where everybody here was focused on the presidential election, um, where in Kabul it was really open season on foreigners and on Afghans. So within a seven-week period, uh, three foreigners were, uh, foreign journalists were kidnapped. Two uh, foreigners were shot on the street. Several prominent Afghan families had their children kidnapped for money. And the Ministry of Interior was bombed. And I had lived in this crazy house, which is probably a book for another time, uh, and not a G rating, um, that was half aid workers and half security guys. And they would do PowerPoint presentations, the security guys, of which group, Taliban-friendly group or not, um, was kidnapping which nationality for what amount of dollars. And they would say, take close protection with you. Take armed, take a few armed guys. We have them. I said, no way. Could you imagine me showing up in communities? Because I'm not talking to men with guns or men in suits. I'm in young women's homes every day. And if I show up with a guy with a gun, I will get her in so much jeopardy, security-wise. This would be a disaster. So I went on with the work that I was doing. And I did it because these young women had taken incredible risks during years where no one was paying attention to them. And they had been trusting enough to give me their stories. And I had a responsibility to tell them. And so that's why I went on. But I did take security risks. So I would show up in very big black pants, black t-shirt, black socks, black aerosols, uh, no makeup, a ponytail, and a headscarf and a jacket from the Islamic clothing store in Anaheim, California. And when I showed up, I was actually incredibly disappointing to most of the young women. 
Because those two young women who had said, yes, I will speak with this foreign journalist who've come to visit, at least expected Pamela Anderson to be there when they opened their door. Not, uh, as one young woman said, a dowdier version of ourselves. <laughs> Which was true, but it had been done very purposely because um, those were very tough times where everybody thinks the Taliban is coming back. And young women were talking to me about what they were doing during the last time around. And so for me, it was a real responsibility. But I got very discouraged. And, and I get asked a lot about the men in Kamala's family. And I guess I want to close before we go into Q&A by, by telling you a little bit about them. Um, Kamala's father had, as I said, nine girls and two boys. And he is possibly the most passionate advocate for girls' education I have ever met anywhere in the world. In the 1960s, he had worked in the north of Afghanistan at a $23 million cotton plant. Swiss German. And he had realized as a young boy that the only thing that separated the fancy European women working next to him with their husbands from the women in his own family was education. And he said, I will make sure that all of them go to school. And as he often told his children, I look on all of you with one eye. So nobody got special exceptions. And I asked him once, was he surprised that his 19-year-old supposed to be professor turned into an entrepreneur and created jobs for women all around their neighborhood? And he said, no. First God, then me, then Kamala provided for our family. And I never had any doubt she could do it. So I reached this point very uh, when one of those days with security had been incredibly bad. I turned off my phone. Uh, I'd gone to do interviews, like all of you, asking to please turn off your phones. I had done that for my set of interviews. And this was toward the end. I turned back on my phone. Uh, probably four hours later, Mohammed said, why hasn't our phone been ringing? Because Afghanistan is an incredibly cellularly connected place. And usually your phone rings off the hook. And he had remembered before I did that our, we hadn't heard from anybody in hours. So I turned it back on, and I had like 15 text messages, um, because you don't have voicemail, but you do have text. And before I could even check one, I get this phone call from the US Embassy. Gail, yes. This is the US Embassy. Yes. We're just wondering, are you the journalist who's been kidnapped? I said, well, considering I'm picking up my phone, it's probably not me. But it was a day like that, and I'd had a set of weeks like that. And then finally, um, I was wrapping up. I felt like we might actually have a chance of bringing this book to readers, despite all the setbacks security-wise along the way. And Kamala says, my brother wants to meet you. And the first thing I thought of was, oh, no. Because if you've ever spent time in traditional cultures or in tough parts of the world, particularly in traditional societies, you know that it only takes one unhappy brother or uncle or cousin to derail your entire project. And I thought, he's going to come to me and say, this is hardly the time to be writing about the work my sister did during the Taliban years. Because in case you hadn't noticed, they're likely to be coming back. So I had a piece of paper that looked something by probably about three times this size that had the list of every reason why he should let me tell his sister's story. That no one puts Afghanistan and entrepreneur and woman and Taliban in the same sentence, let alone the same story. And that at a time when people in the United States have had it with this war and no longer remember the people who are fighting for the same values as them, 
for a better chance for their children and something better for the next generation, this book would remind them. And I was sort of terribly, terribly nervous about how the discussion was going to go. Muhammad kept trying to reassure me and said, okay, we're just going to meet him. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. So we go to the Kabul Inn, which is a very dumpy hotel in the new city in Kabul. There is one four-star hotel in Kabul. The UN likes to stay there, and the Taliban likes to hit it with rockets. So I <laughs> tend to like to avoid it. So we meet at the Kabul Inn, and it is about as grim a backdrop as you can imagine. There's sort of bad Bollywood videos playing on the corner, a congealed buffet that's out on the table from several hours before, a poor naked shrub that's out to my right out the window, and gray as far as the eye can see. It's a December afternoon, another December afternoon, many years later from my first meeting with Kamala. And he comes running in 90 minutes late. And I jump up because my nerves have gotten the best of me. And I say, oh, you know, what would you need? Do you want tea? Do you want it? No, no. So I'm sorry I'm late. It's Karzai presidential election season. And as you know, you can't move two blocks without roadblocks because everybody's worried about bombings. And he said, but I'm really glad you're here. I said, oh, yes, me too. And he turned to me and he said, look, Gail, this won't be long, but I wanted to tell you that I wanted to meet you because I wanted to thank you. And I wanted to thank you because my sister was so brave at such a difficult time. And she supported not just me in Pakistan and my father in Iran, but families all around our neighborhood who counted on us to help them feed their families. And I always hoped that a foreigner would come and tell her story. And I think at that point, he understood much, much better than I did why this story mattered. That there are unsung heroines and inspiring entrepreneurs who do very hard work every day all around the world with no one stopping to thank them and let alone to celebrate them. And there is nothing soft about these stories. These are war stories the same as men with guns, and they deserve both our hearing and our support. And I think that is why I have been so moved to be able to come to rooms like this and to join you and to share this story, because I really do hope that this book does its small part to change the conversation about women in war and to remind people of the inspiring entrepreneurs who are all around us and who deserve our investment. So thank you so much. For and you don't have to be shy. I'm a journalist. I, I can take it, I promise. Oh, so how many years was it before the father could come back? He did not come back until after the Taliban fell. There's a scene in the book where he comes back early on. So he went to the north first, to their family's ancestral home. And it was kind of interesting why he didn't take his daughters, because a lot of people in this country find it offensive that a father would leave his daughters at home during the Taliban years. But the truth is, he really felt like he was putting his girls at risk. Um, and the reason why he didn't take them were twofold. One is he was very worried about leaving the house with four daughters. He was one man, and how was he going to protect them? Because all kinds of things had been happening, both during the Civil War years, which ended in 1996, and who knew during the Taliban years. Um, and the second reason why he didn't take them was because he was terrified they would be besieged by marriage proposals if he took them to the north. And he really wanted his girls to be able to study and to, study and to work. And he knew that as bad as the Taliban years were for women, they were also safer. 
And that's actually the reason why they were welcomed initially in some parts of the country, was because there had been anarchy for years. I mean, there are really horrendous stories of the Civil War during which girls would be taken from their homes, taken from schools, and never seen again by their families because one warring commander or another decided they wanted them. And so for families like Kamala's, this was almost an improvement because the Taliban may not have wanted women on the street, but they wouldn't usually come into your home. They would leave you be as long as you followed the rules. And that's what these young women were trying to do. But it was years before they were all reunited. So I'll come here and then there. I just wanted to know, where was the mother? So the mother was, Kamala's mother was in and out. She um, has a heart condition. She's had 11 children, and it's not an accident. <laughs> I didn't mean that they go together, but I do think that started. <laughs> uh, but she's, um, she does have some physical challenges, and, she, and actually none of her children have come anywhere near having as many children as she did, in part because of her counsel. Um, but she was, with her, she was with her husband in the north at the beginning, and then she went back and forth between the north of Afghanistan and Kabul. So she would come back and forth. But she needed to make sure that their property stayed their property. Because in conflict times, which was another reason why Kamala's father left his family in Kabul, you leave your house, you lose your land. I mean, squatters' rights exist. Uh, and good luck taking it to court to get your property back. So her father, mother would come back and forth and, and did a lot of work with the girls during those years. I think there was a question, there was in the blue back, and I see you and we'll definitely, we'll make our way back there. Uh, what is the hope for the future in Afghanistan? I don't know about Karzai, and he's talking to the Indians now, and there's a you know, problem with the Indians and the Pakistans yes. and all that, but yes. I just wonder about the hope for education for women. So I am probably most pessimistic about Afghanistan when I'm here, and most optimistic when I'm there. And I think it's just the company you keep. I mean, when you meet, so you, op, entrepreneurship is an optimistic act in itself. Because you have to believe there's a tomorrow for you to invest today. And that is what you see, that there are women who have lived through decades of conflict, unending. You know, Kamala, and we talk about this in the book, her generation has never lived in peace. And so they just get on with it because they have no other choice. People are counting on them, and if you're going to wait for peace, you will be waiting a very long time, in their view. So people just make the best of the circumstances that they have. And so I think what gives me the most hope is the power of these homegrown role models. So Kamala has this very funny story. In 2005, she was asked to go to Kandahar, which is the seat of the Taliban, to give a gender sensitivity training <laughs> to men. So there is this brilliant picture of her surrounded by you know, several dozen men with white beards, very long, in Kandahar. She was very, very nervous about going for very obvious reasons, brought her uncle, wore a burqa, showed up in this room, and said, I come here not as your teacher, but as your sister and your friend. And I've come to share what I've learned. And she began started by citing the Quran, and then went on with her two-day session. And at the end of it, a mullah from Kandahar came up to her and said, you know, if I could be sure my daughter would turn out like you, I would send her to school tomorrow. And the heartbreak in that is that his daughter would probably never go to school. The good part in that is that he will think about it. 
And that is the power of these young women to make change. They are making change everywhere around that country. Just very few people know about them, note them, pay attention to the very quiet fight that they are waging in very traditional ways to change their societies. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll finish by saying this answer by saying, you know, a lot of, I get into this with a lot of European journalists. Um, I'm sorry for the men in the room, but most of them are men who tell me, you know, you're Gail, you're just writing about the exceptions. And my first answer is, well, that's why they call it news. <laughs> right? And the second thing I say is this. In the 1970s, women in Switzerland could not vote. The first group of women to graduate from West Point was 1980. Women in the Foreign Service in the 1970s in the United States had to quit when they got married. So before you think your own country's history is so uh, much to be proud of, you should look at the number. The second thing I say is that these young women are as Afghan as Afghan can be. They, you think of women in Kandahar who will never leave the house when I say Afghan women. I tell you, think about these same young women who are much tougher than you would ever think, who are out there every day for the sake of their families. And then the third thing I say is there is no society anywhere around the world that is not changed except by its exceptions. And that is why these young women's stories matter. There are enough of them to matter. <laughs> There's a question in the back. Um, what is Kamala doing now and um, the, the women she inspired? Yeah. Do you keep up with her? I do. Um, I wrote to her uh, when the book became a bestseller because you know, there were a lot of days we did not think this book would ever happen. I never was quite honest with her about how despondent I was at certain times because I didn't want her to give up because she had been, you know, you, it's a huge responsibility that people let you into their lives. It's a real responsibility and a privilege. Um, so I did talk to her about that then. She found it completely unbelievable because I think like most exceptional people, she found nothing unusual in what she did. Um, but she was very moved by it. And she now is an entrepreneur who continues to be on this third business that she had just started when I first met her. She has a large government contract where she goes around the country teaching how to market an idea, how to start a business, how to get your business to market, your idea to market. And she teaches literate and illiterate Afghans and men and women. And that is the business uh, that she is working on now. And a lot of the young women, just the other young women, have gone on to do what they intended uh, on the happy side. One, Manaz, who's a character in the book, has become a professor. Uh, another woman has become a doctor. Um, but on the much more, you know, sort of discouraging note, there are a lot of young girls who had real plans for the future, who were marrying age by the time the Taliban left. And so their parents just married them off before they could go back to school. How did you communicate with him? Did you have a translator? That's an excellent question. Um, these are all great. I could see a visit with you guys forever. Uh, I, there are a couple of things. So Kama speaks um, pretty good English, self-taught, uh, or not, she never went to school. But during the Taliban years, she earned enough money from her business that she hired an English tutor. Because as you see later in the book, she got recruited by UN Habitat, which was running programs for women. all through the Taliban years, including in Kandahar. 
And it was doing this, the UN was doing this, not because the UN wanted to, but because there was a 30-year-old British woman who thought it was a very good idea to engage women who wanted to work. And against the wishes of her UN bosses, she continued to run programs for women throughout the Taliban years. And so, um, they, so Kamala was told she should learn a little bit of English. And so she, you know, the, the English tutor didn't want to work with her because it was the Taliban years, and you could be in big trouble for teaching English. And she said, I'll pay you more. <laughs> and so he went, right? I mean, you know, people needed money. And so she learned a pretty good English. And then uh, Mohammed, my translator, uh, my fixer, was also translating for me some. Um, I learned OK Dari. I actually learned Persian from an Iranian actress in LA. <laughs> uh, so we would meet for coffee. And so I learned enough Dari to have a basic conversation. Um, and then, um, I would, in very sensitive situations, I would definitely use a female translator. Because a lot of young women did not want their brothers to know they were talking to a foreigner. And so um, we would just say it was a cousin's visit. And you know, men wouldn't come in there anyway. So this young woman uh, translated for me. She was brilliant. And when the book came out, that USA Today piece came out, she sends me this email. Gail, Gail, I just saw the USA Today piece. I'm in New Haven at Yale. And she is, I mean, you talk about agents for change. She's an incredible young woman who will go back to Afghanistan and share what she knows. Thank you. Over there and then. The um, Afghanistan started early 2002, if I think correctly, and then April 2003, we invaded Iraq. Um, where are those people today, if you can speak generally? How do they feel about what's happened in the last seven, eight years? And do you see any connection? This gets into politics, yeah, but no, do, no, sure, do you sure. see any connection between what was started back then and what's going on now in Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, mm. et cetera? Oh, that's an interesting question. So um, everyone in Afghanistan knows when the US invaded Iraq. I'm asked about it all the time, uh, very regularly. Why did the U.S. invade Iraq? Didn't you know that you weren't going to be able to do both at the same time? I mean, very sort of sophisticated questions. And people would say, you know, we know what happened. Um, why didn't you finish the job here? Didn't you think the Taliban was going to come back when you looked away? And I obviously don't have great answers because you can see the shift in manpower and dollars and attention, right? I mean, heck, even as a reporter, try selling a piece about Afghanistan in 2005. No one cared. And if it was about women, really no one cared. Um, so you definitely get asked about that. People are very well aware. There was an enormous amount of goodwill early on. People did not see, I, I wrote this piece for CNN recently about three, you know, all these things people think they know about Afghanistan are wrong. One of them is that the people see us as the same way they did the Russians. It's just not true. Um, they may not like the international presence for various reasons, but it's not seen in the same way as the Russians. And there were a lot of people who really believed that something better would happen when the international community came in. But I will say that governance and corruption and security are enormous issues, and they are corroding Afghan society. And everyone knows it. I mean, I was telling one of Kamala's nephews that I was going to be meeting, going to ISAF. And he said, oh, you're going to meet David Petraeus. I mean, he's like 16 years old. Right? I mean, everybody is very intimately aware of the details of this. So I, I worry because I think that a lot, 
there was an enormous amount of goodwill and there has been so much eroded, in part because we are seen as propping up people who are preying on their own people. And that is not a great place to be. That said, people still do want to, especially women, are working to make the most of the openings created by the international community's presence. And they're trying to do what they did in the Taliban years, take any opening they could find and exploit it for not just themselves, but for as many people uh, as they can. And in terms of the Middle East, people are very aware of what's happening, but um, you don't see a lot of the same things. You do see civil society in Afghanistan really speaking up, particularly women. Like I was there in July, uh, and it was the Kabul conference, which was one of these big donor events where everybody came to Kabul to talk about the future of Afghanistan. Right? And uh, up until the night before, women did not know whether they were going to get a speaking role. And honestly and truly, it was Hillary Clinton and the EU's foreign representative who fought with the Karzai government and the UN to make sure that women had a seat at the table and spoke. And so you do see, though, that women are really speaking up for themselves, civil society is speaking up for itself. But the question mark about what happens next in terms of the Taliban and peace negotiations sort of looms over everything. Yeah. Uh, no, like the March. The Hillary Doctrine was the piece. It was a cover story about um, Hillary Clinton's push to put women at the center of U.S. foreign policy. So, for better. Yeah. You used the term fixer when oh, yes. you referred to Muhammad. Can you expand on that? Yes. Um, Thank you. That is journalistic slang for somebody who makes sure that you can do your job and a very, very trusted and valued colleague. Um, and he's throughout the book. Um, you know, I have become very uh, close friends with his whole family. I go to Panjshir and to parts of the north with his wife and children um, and visit. And you know, they are your lifeline. They are people. The fixers are the people who make sure you have currency, you have a cell phone that works, you have a place to stay, you can make interview appointments if you don't have uh, local language skills. Um, you get to and from the airport. Um, when I first went in 2005, it was like you know almost a bad movie trying to get in and out of Kabul. So there was no regular flight schedules. You would just have to keep calling the airline to find out when the plane was going to leave. And Muhammad would go yell at the guy, say, you have to tell us what time her flight is supposed to leave. And he'd say, oh, check back in a couple hours. And they would literally drive the flight uh, itinerary from the offices to the airport. And you just hope that your name was on it. Because if you weren't, you weren't getting out of the country. When my visa expired, it was Muhammad who had to go and fight and fight and fight to get my visa done. I mean, they are really journalists friends, colleagues, and they are the people, especially when security is tough, without whom you cannot do your work. Gail, why don't you talk about what you're working on next? <laughs> so I'm going to introduce Andrea, who is um, a very uh, well-known book blogger, who um, even fought my publishers to make sure that uh, this book was the first book club book for uh, the Sits Girls book club, which she runs. And so I am working next on a book. I I think this is what's going to happen, I'll knock on wood here, about Liberia. Um, same kind of story uh, about a woman who got out right before the Civil War took her city and now runs this catering business with a bunch of young women who survived the war, who all have pretty incredible stories and who support themselves 
with this catering business that this woman runs. And she joked with me when I met her that she doesn't even care about the business anymore other than to make sure it's turning a decent profit because she's much more worried about the young women who are working within it and that they get their kids educated because that is what is going to be the future of their country. I think the women in this country take their rights for granted, especially your generation. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, and so I would say, do the women in this country, do they understand, the young, and the young women in this country understand what's happening in Afghanistan, and do they support the women in what they're trying to do? Do they, do they get it? Thank you. I love this question. Um, I was just talking about this with several young women. So I think the problem with women of all ages, and I will say the problem because I think it's a problem, is that they underestimate the impact they can have. And that it is not cost free to not do something, whatever it is. Because women tend to think, oh, it doesn't matter if I do this, right? I, what, what difference can I make? They're much more willing to fight on behalf of other women than they are to fight on their own behalf. And I find that especially talking to younger women. Um, and I say to them all the time, you should never underestimate the ability that you have to make change. Because if you give up your seat at the table, then it makes it that much harder to bring women who will never have a chance to be in a room with air conditioning and power and infrastructure and roads and you know not the worst place in the world to be a you know to be a pregnant woman sort of maternal mortality statistics all of that stuff you shortchange them so if you don't do it for your own sake if you don't get involved to talk to your legislators to give your time to give your money to make sure that women are heard then do it for other women and I think that has been a much more powerful argument that I found. But I do think it's funny because, you know, a lot of these discussions are sort of women's discussions, but they're not. They are absolutely economic discussions that impact men and women. And I've never understood how women can be both half the population and a special interest group. Right? Think about that. The math does not add up. And yet we all buy into it. Right? We all mind, oh, these are soft stories. I feel bad. I'm talking about women. This probably isn't really a war. You know, no, this is absolutely about what kind of world are you leaving your children? Uh, I'm much more tired when I think about it. <laughs> um, no, I'll tell you, this is a really interesting question. Uh, so when I first met Kamala, neither one of us uh, were married and neither one of us had kids. And we would joke that. Um, both of us had families that thought the work that we did was insane and just wanted us to get married and have babies. And neither one of us was in a hurry to do either one of those things. Um, but, you know, I think you, you're more thoughtful about what, what are you leaving behind, right? I think that is, you know, I always thought about that before, but I, I think you, this is much more personal to you. Um, I was in a book signing actually in Massachusetts and this woman basically pummeled me and said, well, will you still go to Afghanistan now that you're a mother and don't you think that's irresponsible? And I said, wow, do you ask that to male reporters who stand up here? I'm gonna put money on the fact that you probably don't, right? And they usually have kids too. No, that, that, I'm not making light of it at all, but it's a very personal thing, that, a discussion that you have with your spouse. And I happen to be incredibly fortunate in having a wonderfully supportive husband, uh, without whom I couldn't do this work. And so, but that's not a discussion to have, but that is a question women get asked all the time. And I said to her, you know, look, I think it's about what kind of a role model you're going to be for your son. 
if you're going to ask me about how I think about it. And I also think it's a personal conversation. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, I, I promise you that, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of somebody, you know, to folks who wrote uh, New York Times best-selling reporters from you know, the male perspective, Sebastian Younger is never going to get that question, right? He's not. <laughs> Hi, um, I love your passion, and Galen has spoken so highly of you. I'm so. That's my mother-in-law. Yeah, I have a cheering Galen's section. A good friend of mine. It's so <laughs> great to to see you. But um, I've really been studying the feminine energy for the last ten years, and it's interesting seeing it come into the planet now and leaving the the patriarch. And I think there's going to be more of a balance with the matriarch and the patriarch and the masculine and feminine. And um, I just wanted to comment that as a male and have my own business for years, it just seems like women work harder than men. I mean, male, have their, male energy has their place and all that, but it's interesting that I think Afghanistan, America, I mean, everywhere else, you just watch the feminine coming in and it's, it's, it's awesome because it's nurturing, it's creative, and the male energy has screwed up a lot of things. But, but this is interesting. And it really has, it had its place. But, you know, it's exciting to see you women and be here, and just thank you so much. <laughs> um, so, thank you. Uh, I think there's something to that, but I will say that um, the truth is women are still way far from power, right? Look at who, I mean, I think about this as somebody, I mean, I work at the Council on Foreign Relations. Those of you who know that know that... Um, when there's a room of the Council on Foreign Relations meetings, it's about the inverse of the ratio in this room. Um, I went to Harvard Business School, right? They can't top 35% women to save their lives. Uh, there are not TV networks, news divisions run by women. There are not mostly, except for Tina Brown and a couple others, women running magazines. I mean, look at uh, G20 meetings, you'll get a pretty good sense of where women are, right? And do I think it's changing? I think it's changing slowly. Um, but I also think women have a role to change that. And that, that goes back to this whole discussion about can you make a difference. Um, I do think women need to be in the discussion and need to be fighting for it. And sometimes when things are not easy, women say, oh, well, that's too hard. That's sort of, I'm not going to go and wade in. No, you have to be there. You have to be there in that battle. Right? And, and I think that it's true that women are really making strides, and it's very sexy now in some ways to talk about women's stuff. Right? I mean, in 2005, when I tried to sell stories about writing about women entrepreneurs, I mean, I cannot tell you the reactions I got from people like, oh, that's so nice. Come back to us in a couple years. Um, and now it's like, you know, people like Nick Kristoff have done phenomenal work. Um, then there has been uh, a lot of written, you know, whatever you want to say about Greg Mortensen. He did make people care about girls' education. And Three Cups of Tea did make a difference in terms of raising people's awareness. You do see, you know, Clinton Global Initiative focusing on women, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. So you do see things starting to shift. But I think there is a long way to go if you look at who controls power. I hope you're right that we're on the right path. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. Um, thank you all. It's been really my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Please, please. We can't leave yet. I'm, uh, 
he sort of took my thunder and, and <laughs> changed things a little bit. And I'm not quite sure what to say because he did start to bring up an interesting subject. And uh, it's, it's more religious and the impact of the subjugation of women yes. in Islam and what it's had to do with development in that mm -hmm. part of the world, which is not just a book, it's probably a whole library. But okay. uh, I've known Gail for a while, and um, she's married to a friend of mine, and I read the book a long time, and I, if you haven't read it yet, you need to. And the only question, and I wanted this to be the closing question, is because what you've done is really important, and I want to know when production of the movie starts. We have had some early discussions uh, about films, Jeff. Um, I think like most writers who are terrified of losing their baby, I'm very nervous about it becoming Hollywoodized, and all of a sudden Kamala has a love interest, and then there's you know problems in Afghanistan. and. So, you know, we're treading very, very carefully. Um, you know, of course, we would love Leonardo DiCaprio to be involved, given his. Um, but, but so, yes, there are discussions, but we'll see. I think uh, slowly is, is um, really the answer to that. Well, thank you all very much, and thank you for being here. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.